Let's talk about silence. It's a natural resource we don't often think about because it's an absence rather than a presence. But most of the places we think of as quiet are actually filled with an abundance of natural sounds, from canyon wrens whistling in the Grand Canyon to orca whales calling underwater in the quiet depths of an Arctic sea. As humanity grows louder, these pockets of silence and natural sounds are becoming rarer. These are the words of our guest, Peter McBride, and these ideas are the focus of his book, Seeing the Silence, the Beauty of the World's Most Quiet Places. Peter sits down with our host, Eric Weinmayer, for a wide-ranging chat on how a photographer versed in visual language is figuring out how to use that to describe something we experience with our ears, sound. His adventure trekking 750-some miles across Grand Canyon National Park to highlight development challenges facing this iconic landscape. How an environmental ethic took hold on his soul and what he's doing about it, and much more. Let's get into it. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, this is Eric Weinmayer. Welcome to the No Barriers podcast. We got Pete on, my friend Pete McBride. I'm so excited to have you aboard today, Pete. I'm a huge fan uh, and I've uh, got to know you over the years. We have a little bit of a circle that we hang out in. So it's, uh, it's so cool to follow all your adventures, all your incredible projects over the years. Um, and uh, I, I, we're going to brag to start things off, right? Let your, uh, your latest book, Seeing Silence, just won the National Book Award, I, I believe. And, uh, and so congratulations is, is in order there. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a huge honor, cool. right? Well, yeah, no, it's great. Um, thanks for having me, Eric. It's uh, good to hear you. Good to, good to see you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Through a podcast, we are looking at each other. Um, <laughs> You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. Yeah, you can just hear me. But uh, yeah, you also wrote the uh, the forward to my book, so um, it's I'm a, just as much a fan of you and your amazing <laughs> accomplishments. So thank yeah. you for teaming up with me. Well, you you've had such an interesting career because you're you're an adventurer, but you're also it's not just kind of like frivolous adventure. This is one of the things I think is really unique about you. You have like a, this really unique stamp. Or footprint, which is you go out and and you are a true explorer in the fact that you're trying to discover things and learn things about the environment uh, and bring those discoveries to the world rather than just like a guy like me who goes out and climbs. Uh, I, and I, I think that's really beautiful. So how how did you, I, I guess it's like a big question that may be impossible to answer, but how did you sort of find that conservation side 
instead of just going the route of like so many climbers or kayakers or skiers who just go out and do extreme things for the for the sake of it? Yeah, it's a good question. I um, I mean, I was like you trying to find my way into big, bigger and bigger, harder adventures from Everest and, and beyond. But where, wherever I went, I was always interested in the story behind the scenes. So on Everest, I was really became intrigued with the, the, the Sherpa and the ice doctors who build the route through the Kumbu fall, um, ice fall. And um, so I, I did a story on them back in the day. And then um, I came home actually to Colorado. We both are in the same state, although we're, 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 we're apart from each other by a few hours. Um, there's just and, a little mountain separating us. Yeah, there's just a continental divide between us. Yeah. <laughs> I um I got an assignment to follow a, another adventure, a guy who was doing a story paddling the length of the Colorado River, which is um I think most people probably heard of it. It's the architect of the Grand Canyon and goes fifteen hundred miles through seven states in the southwest. Um even though you're on the other side of the Continental Divide, you get all your drinking water where you live on the other side of the state, or most of your drinking right. water from this river. And so the story was to follow this guy paddling this amazing iconic river through iconic landscapes. And towards the end of the project, I met him down near the U.S.-Mexican border and the river just fizzled into this frappuccino pit of muck and garbage. And I remember being like, this is crazy. This is, I consider this my backyard river. I grew up on it and it doesn't reach the ocean anymore. And it did for six million years, and we don't talk about it. Reached it reached the Sea of Cortez, right? Yeah, the Gulf of California. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to be the largest desert estuary in North America. And so that all changed in my lifetime. And I decided, well, if I'm going to do adventures, we need places where we can adventure. If these places are vanishing before our eyes, uh, then we need to start talking about that too. And so it's it started on rivers and water and led to, you know, climate change and public lands and, and, uh, you know, everything that's sort of in between there and connected energy and so forth. So I've always had, so it this- sounds like you like the journalist kind of almost side of this the adventuring, right? Where you kind of report on what you're seeing and the things that you're learning along the way. Yeah. I, I'd say I like that. I, I like trying to frame, I like trying to find beauty in, the challenge too. So, um, I work mostly as a photographer. I do writing too, but so I'm always, you know, I'm what I think will be fun about today's podcast is I'm trying to work in the visual language to show people this stuff, but what's happened also in the process and this, this book that you teamed up with me is all about the, the auditory, mm-hmm. which is more your world. And yeah, I think that I'm trying to now I realize that there's value and and importance in both and we need to start yeah. paying attention to both of these. Hmm. I want to talk a lot about I want to talk a lot about seeing silence but um I also want to just pause a moment on that cuz you mentioned the Grand Canyon trip. That's where I got to know you first. That got a lot of attention when you went to the, you know, where the water ends on the Grand Canyon or excuse me the Colorado River and the way I understand it was it just turned into this pit of like nastiness, like detergents and soaps and toxicity and 
just disgusting smells and uh, can you describe that? Like, was that just like the biggest shock to see that waste dump, or maybe you describe it differently? No, that you did well. It's uh, so the the river crosses um, into Mexico just by Yuma, Arizona, and it there's a last dam there called the Morelos Dam, and it diverts water to Mexico. They get a allocated amount of water, a million and a half acre feet. Acre feet is a football field, a foot deep. And they use that for agriculture just like we do. And below that dam, the river kind of trickles through this little, like, I don't know, wild section called the Limitroph. And it used to be famous for bird hunting because so many birds used to use the, the delta down there as their kind of resting spot when they were traveling from, you know, seasonally from one pole to the next. And we paddled down through that in these little pack rafts because the flow was really diminished by then. Um, there's over a hundred dams on the Colorado River, um, you know, some small but some very big, like Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam. And so when we crossed into Mexico, we have about a hundred miles left before it reaches the sea, and we're, we're paddling in this little tiny like creek at this point. And I was thinking, like, wow, we actually might get further than I thought. I knew that the river was challenged down there. And then we turned around this corner, went under this bridge um, near uh, this little town called uh, Rio de Colorado. And it just turned the corner and it turned into like this like weird like frothiness, this brown like, I call it a frappuccino pit. Ugh. It was, you know, nothing like tasty like frappuccinos. <laughs> and it had it a had, smell too, right? Yeah, it stunk and there was sewage and there was a lot of plastic and there was just a lot of garbage and... By then, they say the river's been reused like seven times. You know, agricultural um, irrigation system, it sort of recycles and gets back to the river. But it just fizzled into nothing. And my friend John Waterman, he was the guy paddling the length of the river. Yeah. We just we packed up our bags and our boats, really heavy. We carried some fresh water for drinking. And um, we just started walking. And it was so weird because it... You know, to see the major river like that, that literally, you know, helped carve the Grand Canyon, which is 6,000 feet deep and, you know, has class, nearly class five rapids to fizzle into this muck just amazed me. And and I had read stuff about the Delta. I'd never really heard much about it, but I had read a little bit from a guy named Aldo Leopold, who was a famous conservationist back in the 20s and 30s. And he took a canoe down there in 1922, and he described the river down there as being the river was nowhere and everywhere because he, he there was no current, right. basically. Right. So he couldn't decide, like, which where sh should I paddle? And he also described cottonwood forests and jaguar and the sky turning black with flocks of birds flying overhead. And so to come down there, not much... You know, not much later in the scheme of things, you know, it was really 80 years later and to see nothing and to see no water and to see no birds and to hear no wildlife and see no cottonwood forests. I was like, wow, we've really, <laughs> we've really screwed this up. And we, but then and a miraculous thing happened, right? Which is the, the surge, right? So uh, yeah. I know you'll probably get to that. Uh, that that's, that's what I think is really what really moves me actually is 
it was sad to see that happen. It was sad also that we don't, we weren't talking about this. Um, you know, we, we, yeah, it was like a hidden kind of like a secret, not like somebody was trying to make it a secret, but nobody talked about it. It seemed like it was just wasteland that nobody even thought about out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, totally. It's like, well, nobody cares. And I'm like, why don't we care about our drinking water? I mean, the river supplies drinking water to 40 million Americans today. It's like, isn't that more important than TikTok or <laughs> no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but then something amazing happened. So that, trip was uh, you know over a decade ago and then in 2013 they did what was considered the first of a, what's been a few pulse flows and they released uh, it was less than one percent of the river but they opened up those gates on the Morelos dam um for eight weeks uh if i remember correctly it's like a big surge right like i mean it's yeah. like basically they release more out of the dams they just right. opened it up for eight weeks and let it um you know, conservation uh, groups had bought water um, to yeah. basically pulse this this estuary, this delta back to life, and try to restore certain areas. And a lot of it went into the groundwater. There's a section there that's so dry that it, it's just there's no even groundwater underneath these rivers. Um, and um, but we paddled it um, a few friends, and it was really cool to see it bounce back to life. And it gave me a lot of hope that we actually if we have the political will and we do start talking about these things that, and we care, we can, we can create change for the good. We can, we can turn things around. And what's amazing is there wasn't a lot of people involved in that. Um, you called it a Nate, like nature has a memory. Like uh, that's the way I heard you describe it maybe on a Ted talk or something like that. Yeah. Right? It, it, I called it a, an ecological memory. So yeah. the minute the water shut up, Nature was like, oh, yeah, we know what to do. And so there were these little crustaceans that had embedded themselves in the sand and they hatched and they started swimming. They hadn't seen water in 20 years and they were just right back to life. And the trees started spawning and the birds all showed up suddenly. And then the coyotes and the fish amazingly appeared out of nowhere. They started swimming downstream. And <laughs> well, the whole thing was like, you know, it was like somebody turned on nature's stereo and uh, and it suddenly felt like a a really instead of a barren kind of scary lonely landscape, it it became kind of a wonderful sanctuary again. Um, kind of it felt like you're in the wilds of yeah you know, some magical river delta. So you've had these experiences, Pete. That like when you describe this water system coming back to life and it beginning to team with animal life again, and you've described. When we were on NPR together, you talked about this really cool story of um, in, in a project uh, lately uh, swimming with killer whales and the whale pulsed you. He like gave a sonar pulse at you and it just like was like a – you described it as a, as a whale high five. That stuff gives me goosebumps, total goosebumps. I almost want to cry when I hear those stories. Is there like an emotional resonance you know, with these things for you or do you see it more scientifically? Uh, it's a great question. I, I, if I'm totally honest, there's a huge emotional resonance. I think the, the orca, which, um, they're actually porpoises. They're the largest porpoise in the world. Um, that was probably one of the most spiritual things I've ever experienced. I, I didn't feel scared, even though it's, you know, an eight ton, uh -huh. 25 foot male orca pinging me with his best communication device with this, it's silent, but very like, 
you know, it's like ACDC hitting you in the chest <laughs> um, without the noise, uh, if that makes sense. It's like the vibration yeah. of being near the bass at a rock show. Um, it was oh, very yeah. like, it was very humbling. It, it, it just made me realize there's so many amazing species and other beings on this planet that we know so little about. And, you know, with our huge footprint as human beings, we're sadly, you know, having huge impacts on these species. And so there's an element of having, I feel very privileged to experience some of these things, but there's an element of sadness and it, it often weighs on me and it's, you know, it's often challenging in my work. Cause I, I, I love the, the spirit and the, you know, the so-called stoke of adventure and going out and putting yourself out there and testing your body. But I, I, um, I really love trying to like, make sure that these places and these, these wild creatures are there for, you know, my nieces and nephew. And if I have kids one day that they'll, they'll perhaps get to have a similar experience. And so I, I worry that, you know, we're, we are so caught up in our own, our own noise, so to speak. Right. Yeah. But, um, I couldn't stop thinking a little bit when you told that whale story, like the octopus teacher, you know what I mean? Like we don't really have, like most of us don't really have a relationship with, with these animal species like it's like these incredible animals share the planet with us and we don't hardly know anything about them it's it's almost like we're sharing the planet with these like aliens you know what i mean and we take them for granted totally and what i think is really interesting is we used to be a little more in connection with it i think we used to be you know more dependent on the land or connected to the land and the rivers and the water. I mean, we we all think that um, you know, food comes from the grocery, water comes from the tap, whatever you need comes from Amazon, you know, at your doorstep. Right. And there's this whole amazing world out there that that I think is is can teach us a lot. And and something I've I've thought about is there's it relates back to this kind of emotional, even spiritual question is, you know, modern Western religion puts human beings at the top. Right. In Christianity. And we're the teacher and we're, we're the master of all these species. Yeah, it's our domain. Yeah. And native religions put us at the bottom. We need to learn from all our, our feathered and furried cousins and brothers and sisters like we're the dumb ones and they're the enlightened ones so we're at the bottom of the triangle versus the top and they see the world in such a different perspective and i i often i wish somehow we could try to change that paradigm and and shift and become more humble of our how we live in this in this world yeah yeah right yeah i actually think you probably have a lot of that sense you, you've been forced to having to move in a world in a different way and, and listen yeah. in a way that n- few others do. So I wonder, I'm sort of bouncing it back. You, I know you're the interviewer here, but I, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. what you would say. Well, I mean, it's not like I have hidden talents. I just, because you're blind, you don't have sight to rely on. So yeah, you got to pay attention to your other senses. And then you slowly start to kind of eke out information through your other senses. But then, yes, you start to eke out these beautiful uh, sounds and smells and touch things that you can touch and uh, and and yeah, it's you know, I don't know how to say it, but like you know, when you have uh, ten million high definition pixels 
in your eyeballs, uh, you know, you don't have to rely on these other senses. Um, but in a way, because you're over-reliant on sight, and I'm not saying you, I'm just saying people in general, um, maybe we do become blind a little bit to the full spectrum of what's out there. I, I, I would agree with you 100%. I think we've become blind to, to the natural world on many fronts. And I'd, I'd like to hope we're coming back to it, but out of curiosity, well, that's what, yeah, what sense has, do you think has become stronger or which do you rely on more, sound or, or smell? Or does it change? I'd say like really like touch and, and sound um, are so powerful in my life. You know, being a climber, like touching the rock, touching the ice. Um, uh, and, then, and then for sure sound, uh, as you know, and I'm sure you discovered in this book, uh, seeing silence that, you know, sound is kind of comprised of sound vibrations, which are constantly bouncing off of objects and coming back at you. And so you can decipher a lot through sound vibrations, whether you're up on top of a mountain and the sound vibrations move infinitely through space or whether you're in a closed place, like a, you know, a skied into like a, a, a clearing in the snow. And, um, and you're like, wow, the way the sound sort of absorbs into the snow, like a, like a soundproof room, you know, uh, like, like a musical studio or something. Uh, um, or like how sound bounces off of rock or how sound sort of filters through trees, through the leaves of trees. It's all different, but it's insanely subtle. That you, and it, it, it's something you have, to, you have to sort of gain that skill, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's hard to gain that skill if you're just like looking around and getting everything you need through your eyeballs. So, I'm sure. Well, you you've, yeah. you've gained it in, in a remarkable way. I well, only because I've had to. Only because I've had to. You know, and and so that's a great segue into the, um, your latest book, which is just incredible. As I said, it, you know, it's winning awards and getting a lot of attention. And uh, so I have a little tangential question, which is, how the heck did you convince a publisher? I'm a photographer. You know, I'm Pete McBride. I'm a photographer, and I'm going to sell you on a book that's not about photography. <laughs> I mean, did did some publishers or some agents be like, uh, I don't think so. I'm not getting it. Well, yeah, I'd said the publisher is Rizzoli, and I did my, um, I did a they book. They believe with, in you at this point, so I did a book on about the Grand Canyon. Yeah, which maybe that's a good place to start. Because that's really where the, the seed for this idea came from. And I, I think this, the backup story is that I spent a year with my friend Kevin Federico walking the entire length of the Grand Canyon and trying to document it and show how fragile the place actually is from development pressures. And Kevin's famous for partly for the Emerald Mile, which was yeah. this insane bestseller. Yeah. Which is an amazing book. And of course... I was often looking down at the river thinking that how crazy you were for, for kayaking it with my buddy Harlan in front of you telling you where to go. It still blows <laughs> yeah. my mind. Um, and Harlan actually helped me in that project as well. Um, yeah. He was like a logistical coordinator. So he helped me kind of find my way at times too. But that, that project, we walked you know, nearly over 750 miles, yeah. roughly 800 miles without most no of trail. No trail. And kind of got the hell beat out of us, you know, huge, huge slice of humble pie. Um, I thought I was a tough adventurer. I was proven otherwise. There, you know, there's nothing like the Grand Canyon to beat you down. 
I'm sure you you know, you know, from your film too, from Lava. Well, one, because you're just like inching along like cliff bands and going up and trying to find it, it. Like, I'm sure so much of your time was spent navigating, trying to figure out where to go. Most of it was just trying to stay, you know, a day ahead of yourself, not, not only to find out where to go, which we often relied on just wildlife. Amazingly, we really were the, the, the you know, the the uninformed, the, the stupid ones looking to like the smarter ones, the lion, the mountain lions, the, the sheep listening to the birds to find our way through, but also finding water. And they were key for that too. And um, so it, like one amazing thing was I would often, I started hearing things as I went and native, there's 11 native American tribes that live in and around the Grand Canyon. And we met with many of them and, and some of their, their elders would kindly like help us. And uh, one woman told me that um, I need to listen to the canyon better. And at first I was like, what, what is she talking about? And as time went on, I realized that she was right. I, I started to learn how to listen to, you know, insects um, and wildlife. And that would often symbol when I was getting near, near water and water was key for us getting through because we were often, the canyon's so deep, you can't be by the river. Right. Uh, and it's sheer cliffs by a lot of it. So we're sometimes 3,000 vertical feet above the river. Wow. And you're 2,000, 3,000 vertical feet below the rim. Wow. So you're really kind of locked in there. Yeah. And <laughs> if you don't have water, I mean, you can't go a day. You, you So we had to find water every day. And that that was really logistically hard. But, but sound became a big thing. And that was um, where the book kind of first got the idea and, hey, can uh, I interject real quick? Because um, I just, I'm dying to share this because when I was going down the Grand Canyon, Timmy O'Neill, who you know, he's an awesome, crazy guy. And uh, he's like, I know this place. We're going to go check it out. And we walked like 10 minutes and it was nighttime over to this uh, sort of side canyon where there was a, a lake. And, uh, and these frogs, he started croaking. That guy's this incredible impersonator. So he started croaking like a frog. And I am not kidding. Hundred frogs replied in, in 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 unison like a chorus. And he would he was like the frog leader, and they would re, they would um, respond. And it was very musical, and it was insanely beautiful. And I thought, God, this is like the highlight of the whole trip. This I don't know. It was just, it was again another goosebump moment. So I kind of had my own sound. Um, experience in the Grand Canyon and and I was thinking about you as as that happened by the way. So you had your frog whispering moment? Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean that guy, he sh- I thought he should be a frog king. I didn't know that Timmy was the fr- the frog, you know, choir singer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was incredible. They t- a- totally thought he was like their god. <laughs> <laughs> well, frogs are frogs are great segue on this subject cuz they they use sound when they're all croaking. That's a way for them to protect themselves. So if they're all croaking in unison, their predators can't figure out where they're croaking from. It's like they've put up this like little croaking force field over them. Yeah. But what's interesting is if, as the world, you know, in noisier places, if there's like jets flying over them or cars, is they all get freaked out and they stop croaking. And then for them to kind of get back up to the, or wait for Timmy to show up and get them back in sync, and start getting the, crog, the croaking force field kind of up and going again, 
they're they're out of rhythm and then they get plucked off by birds or or whatnot whatever's looking right. for them and so it's uh, so it's really interesting because I started learning from the Grand Canyon and other places down there how important kind of soundscapes are for so many of these species and you know and us too I mean just mental health is um you know it's it's been a challenge I think for a lot of us for me in particular COVID really kind of threw me off my my rails and um but but back to the Grand Canyon and this book is the when I was down there is this um this concept of stillness and silence was so hard for me to document because again I was uh, you know down there doing a film and and predominantly a photography assignment for National Geographic I couldn't document the silence and so it really stuck with me and so when I pitched it to the um publisher I said you know these are going to be photographs that try to instill silence or really stillness and beauty but it's they're also going to be about animals and wildlife because so many of these species depend on um, natural soundscapes that are kind of embedded on on a foundation of silence if they can't hear each other because of us and all our mechanical noise then they have a challenge you know if the frogs can't or get like in the bottom of the grand canyon thousands of helicopters like every five seconds as i remember you mentioning and i've experienced that as well right i mean it's just so disruptive yeah, it's it's amazing, and I and I'm all for people having access and seeing these places. But at the very far end of Grand Canyon, in the the western side, is a place called what they nicknamed Helicopter Alley. There's up to 400 flights a day, and you know you think you're going in just one person or one family, but when there's 400 other families going, and when the collective noise, the collective impact is huge. And Kevin and I, of course, walked through there and heard that. And the it doesn't just stay in one spot. It echoes and reverberates through side canyons and slot canyons and up onto the mesas. And so all the wildlife around us was super skittish. And we could hear that kind of echo of turbine drone from basically sunrise until sunset in the far western side. And so I think that's where the book started. Um, COVID, which was the greatest period of quietude is the, the, the COVID lockdown, um, yeah. seismologists that really kind of got the book going. And I think that's, that was a coincidence, started. right? The timing of COVID because everyone tapped into silence like highways, you know, they stopped hearing cars, they birds came back to their yards, right? Like, or yeah. was, was that just a, a weird coincidence? Well, it was funny because the publisher had already kind of signed on to this and then COVID hit and it it sort of just pushed it forward. But it, it really solidified it for me. And and uh, I think um, this experience you mentioned of swimming with, with Orca, that, that was kind of came about during COVID and I got special permission and did the whole quarantining in Northern Norway to swim with the Orca and, and listen to them because they were they weren't talking louder. They were just talking more. And that was because the mechanical background din of us humans had disappeared for a period. And suddenly they're like, hey, we can finally hear each other again. So well, the lockdown sucked for us as humans, it was like a huge windfall for nature and wildlife. They were like, wow, I can hear Frank and Susie over there. You know. And you described the uh, idea of silence in a really interesting way. It's not just absolute void of sound. It's this kind of 
I don't know, uh, like a space that's void of mechanical sounds so that you can actually tap into some of these beautiful, natural, more subtle sounds of nature, right? Yeah, it's basically, the whole book is about silence as a foundation for also natural sounds. It's, uh-huh. um, it's silence defined by void of mechanical noise. Um, right. So you can be in a place that's, you know, pin drop quiet, or you can be in places where I've been lucky to stand in the midst of 200,000 king penguins who all identify their young through sound, not sight. And it's just like the loudest, most beautiful chaos you've ever heard. It's like this you know, symphony of, of squawking. And so that this all happened kind of during COVID as well as some of these experiences. And... Um, it really made me realize that there's another way to talk about um, our natural world and, and conservation and the environment. Um, and that's, you know, through our hearing, our auditory, which of course you, Eric, know you've probably reconnected with that skill, that sense that maybe perhaps we used to have better. What were some of the highlights? Uh, you mentioned penguins. We talked about the whales, the killer whales. What were some of the highlights of, of like, what's the show and tell of the book that um, just kind of blew your mind? The, the penguins were down in um, South Georgia, um, kind yeah. of the Galapagos off of Antarctica. That was amazing. Um, we were there very briefly because I was there right on the front end of COVID. And then we got the radio call. We had to get back to um, the port because everything was about to shut down. The whole world was about to lock down. And so we did this like crazy race back through the high seas of the South um, see um, through the Drake Passage and then did the planes, trains, automobiles. And I got home and I was the only person on my flight back to, to Colorado, <laughs> which was so bizarre. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, that was really weird. Uh, I was re- kind of like, what is going on here? That So I left this kind of wonderful, like, silence of nature in the bottom of the world and came back to this new silence. That was a highlight. Um uh, there was, um, I reflected on a lot of stories I'd done. I reflected on listening to the ice in the Kumbu Icefall on how the ice doctors, the Sherpa that build the route there, described to me how they find the route by listening to the ice as much as they look at it. And, and you described that very poetically in your prologue, too, about the different tones that ice makes. Oh, God. There's this one section in the Kumbu Icefall that's like, they call it the picnic area. It's kind of like the one, it's kind of a joke because you, you're not having a picnic, of course. But, uh, it's it's like you sit there. It's the one place you could sit down. And you're kind of like not – you don't have seracs over you and things like that. And um, you just listen to the glacier ping and pop and croak and and boom and vibrate. And you're just like, holy shit, thing's alive underneath me. Yeah. It, it, it's like listening to like lightsaber Star Wars battles going on all around you. And it like – it goes like running into your feet. You can almost yeah. feel it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, did they call it the Kumbu lullaby? I mean, I'm sure you. you what was that like for you when you were there? Was it just like, what is this place that I'm about to climb into? Uh, uh, was it uh, the ice fall? Wasn't that easy for the blind? It. My joke <laughs> is that it doesn't meet Americans with Disability Act standards. So, yeah, <laughs> that's an old joke, though. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I still can't believe you did that. I don't know what's scarier: you crossing a ladder. Maybe easier not being able to see it or paddling <laughs> into lava. And again, maybe yeah. that's easier not being able to see uh, it. You can hear the deep, you know, that sound vibration, the deep 
you know, uh, sound of vibrations moving down into that crevasse, that deep, gigantic abyss. So that was that was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. What other uh, highlights? Uh, so you got snow, you got penguins. Swimming in the Arctic, having this experience with the orca was pretty yeah. amazing. I think um, just an interesting kind of personal side note is that um, lockdown, like I said, kind of, you know, it, it was so difficult on, on, on the whole world, on, on humans at least. Um, yeah. And it was for me too, like my world of traveling and and going out and speaking and being in front of people stopped and everything just screeched to a halt. I didn't really have, it was really hard to work. So I had a real kind of mental health challenge and everything I had thought I was doing in the world changed. And, and interestingly, like getting out into the quiet and having moments in nature was really therapeutic for me. And I, I learned just how beneficial nature and, you know, these terms like nature bathing and sounds somewhat woo woo at times, but just getting out and giving your space yourself space from, you know, our screens and the beeps and the noise and the distractions is really, um, it's not only amazing for wildlife, but it's amazing for us for, for mental health and even blood pressure and, and heart health. Um, they say it's even beneficial for dementia and Alzheimer's and creativity and focus. So, so you struggled, you struggled in, in the quarantine. Cause I mean, I don't know. I guess I just leap to this idea that like you've been in nature, you've been just with like Kevin, like for this long periods of time, you know what I mean? You've been in all these situations, but it sounds like quarantine was even more of a struggle than, than all of it? I would say quarantine for me, the, the solitude, yeah, uh, which was a different solitude. It was different than, you know, being out in the middle of nowhere, right? By myself in the Grand Canyon or something. Um, it, it definitely put me in kind of a depressed state for a period. And then I, I of course turned to usual vices. I drank too much and, um, did like many of us did during COVID and, um, it, um, yeah, threw me for a challenge. So this book, has a lot of kind of personal, almost therapeutic elements to it. It was a way to reflect and and try to find my way through. And and some people see the life of the v- adventure photographer as being so romantic and and great, but it's the behind the scenes is there's a lot of um, there is a lot of alone time and trying to pull your socks up and figure out what you're going to do next. And and the lockdown, of course, just yanked all that away from us. Yeah. So, so you, but you couldn't go to like hiking trails and stuff like that because they restricted you from doing that. So you had to find some places that you could walk to from maybe your home. Is that right? I live um, in a little town, so they were somewhat restrictive, and we they stopped us from skinning up the mountains. Right. But I, you could still find spots, and um, uh-huh. I mean, it sounds speaking to you who you've overcome so much that it seems like you know minuscule. But it's still, it is what it is. You know, you, we all have our own little battles. Hey, so let's go into like more of your personal story, which is, you, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with somebody who just goes out and get a, gets a good, stable nine to five job. You clearly didn't do that. And you're a self-taught photographer. So how did this come to be? You know what I mean? Uh, why are you not working in a cubicle or something? What What led you to this desire to teach yourself photographer and 
go to, you know, 80 countries or maybe more than 80 countries over the years on all these incredible assignments? Yeah, well, I started as a, an intern working for a newspaper, a little newspaper called High Country News in the western side of Colorado. And I I became enamored with story and um, after college and I going out and meeting people and not making, you know, judgments of them before you meet them and realizing that we're all human. We all share a lot. We have more in common than we have and we don't. And so I became really enamored with that concept of telling story and the power of story. And so I was writing a story for the newspaper and I shot some photos and they liked the photos as much or more than my words. And I was like, huh, maybe this, this whole camera thing's um, got some potential. And it wasn't easy. I did a bunch of different jobs. I actually worked in a prison, putting prisoners to work in gardens um, as a kind of therapeutic way for them and fundraiser for that. Then I worked for my brother. I did a lot of carpentry. I was a ski coach. I did all these things, but I was always taking pictures. And finally I got involved with these guys doing an adventure, an aviation adventure, reenacting a flight in Africa. And I just kind of kept hounding them and kept trying to help them and volunteering. And, and we eventually did it. And it was a, became my first National Geographic story. We we flew a World War One biplane from London to Cape Town. Cool. And reenacted the first time a plane ever did that in, in 1920. We did it in 1999. They did it in 43 days. And in 1999, uh, we did it in 58 days. So we didn't improve. Wow. Amazing. Um, yeah, open cockpit, twin engine. Um, that was a very noisy uh, assignment. I talk about it in the book, too. It's, but it, um, it opened my world and my, you know, my thought process to how I could work for magazines like National Geographic and, and later Smithsonian and outside and others and kind of string it together and make a living. And, and today a lot of, you know, kids ask me, how can I work for National Geographic? How can I do what you did? And it's, it's really tricky because the, the magazine world's gone. You know, yeah. there's a handful of them left. Nat Geo's hanging on. I just did a story for Smithsonian. They're still around, but not many. And it makes me worried that we're losing the power of, you know, thoughtful storytelling, not just the quick hit, you know, Instagram, TikTok, yeah. social media. And I think that's very important for us. It's healthy for us to learn how to think and process, you know, different opinions, different perspectives without, you know, screaming at each other. And I think, you know, having time to sit quietly and ponder is great. And whether you're looking at photographs or reading or listening, they're all, they're all great. And so I've been lucky that I've been able to figure out how to do that. And now. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned <laughs> that you mentioned TikTok and social media and stuff, which is a lot of noise. And, and you're actually talking about a book that you just wrote that is about silence. It's about being introspective, about, you know, just slowing down and trying to pay attention. So it's really quite a contrast to how noisy the world is right now. And, and the media business is, lose, is dis disappearing as well, which is another quiet part of the world kind of retreating, I guess. It is. Maybe it's just evolving, and I hope it yeah. evolves back to a place where we uh, we we value, you know, opinion and story and and thoughtfulness, taking time to listen. So this, you know, this book is sort of a fun way of exploring it. It 
it was broken into seven continents, all all seven continents and adventure stories around it. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of sew it together. But, I, you know, it's a good question. I did work, I did work in a cubicle for a, a <laughs> millisecond. So I tried every uh-huh. job you possibly could. And I just, I was miserable. I just, I yeah. had, you know, one of those wild hairs. I guess I, I grew up in kind of the, the middle of nowhere in Colorado. So I, um, it's hard to, you know, have that in your upbringing and then kind of transform yourself into yeah. a box. Mm-hmm. Is that hard on your mindset? Because your life is not very certain. Like, where is my next book project coming from? Where's my next expedition? How do I raise money for this upcoming film that probably at first feels like Mission Impossible? Is that hard on your psyche? Yeah, uh, 100%. And I think it's, kind of beat me down over the years to a degree because you have to there's never a minute to relax you have to kind of get up and reinvent yourself all the time and you know you know if it was I was at newspapers and I was at magazines and then I became you know social media then I started doing public speaking and then I did documentary films it's a constant evolution and that is um, that's straining Um, it's also fun too, if you have the right mindset, it's, it's just another adventure. Um, but I think, you know, I think you're, you're living in a similar way. You've chosen to do, you know, the unexpected. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious what you would say to that. I mean, it's probably, you've, you've not, you've left the box behind. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, I, that's why I'm asking you because I don't really know. (laughs) I mean, you have to have a kind of faith, I guess, that something cool is around the corner. You know, when I kayak the Grand Canyon, you know, you can have a mindset that like, okay, I'm going to be destroyed by this next rapid and it's fear and doom and gloom and desperation. Or you can say, Hey man, there's something good waiting for me. And, uh, you just keep your eyes and mind open to it, to, you know, to, to the possibilities of, uh, of what's in front of you. And uh, so I, I think there is kind of a, a mindset that you, that you have to, you know, be able to, I guess it's a little cheesy, but to stay positive in, in, in all of that and, and have faith. And it does become for me a little bit of a spiritual thing where it's like, yeah, at the end of the road is something good around the corner. Hopefully not uh, rounding the corner and seeing... Uh, brown latte, you know, <laughs> frappuccino right? pit. Yeah, um, frappuccino. <laughs> yeah, pit. Well, there's a there a friend of mine, uh, this guy named Madoff, who is um, a guy I worked with in India years ago. I did a source to see down the Ganges River, which is yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's I wanted to ask you about that. It's um, the same length as the Colorado River. Colorado River, you know, supports 40 million Americans. The Ganges supports half a billion people. It's like a same length, much bigger. But um, yeah, he had this great line. His name's Madoff, and he, he's a very kind of calm, spiritual human. And I was being my usual stressful, wound up, trying to figure out, you know, how to tell a story and get here and there for pictures and writing and interviews. And he's like, "Peter, <laughs> calm down." And he said, "You know, Verdi is praying for what you don't want," and. I've always loved that. I've hung on to that because uh, it's um, worry is praying for what you don't want is really just like if you're going to focus on the negative, the negative happens. 
Well, I'm like you. I get super stressed. So on the Grand Canyon, for instance, I was really stressed out. And I had good friends like Harlan, who's kind of like a river Yoda, you know, who could calm me down and get me into the right mindset. I had this guy, Lonnie Bedwell, who's blind. And that guy was amazing. He'd tell, he was a, um, he's from Duggar, Indiana. He'd say, Eric, don't bleed before you're cut. And it's kind of what you're talking about. <laughs> I often bleed a lot before I'm cut. <laughs> so do I. That's a hell of a question. So that's the same quote. And it's, it's uh, yeah, so focus on what can be and the good. And I think, uh, you know, all of us struggle with it to a degree. Or it seems like, you know, you listen to the news, we all focus on news. The only news we hear is the negative, generally. I think we need, like, positive news. So yeah, I love that. I'm going to use that. Don't bleed before you're cut. <laughs> so um, a practical question. What's going to happen to the world's water? Like, is there hope? You must have looked into this because a lot of your projects seem to revolve around water. Yeah. I mean, um, like when those glaciers melt in Asia, like, are we doomed? Well, we're not, we're going to, we're going to have to adjust and it's not going to be, we're already seeing it happen. So the glaciers serve as kind of the natural reservoirs. And now we're seeing this pattern of flood or drought. It's one or the other. There's no in between. And it's from the Himalaya, from the Ganges to, you know, the, perennial rivers in, in Africa, you know, flow off of Kilimanjaro or Mount Kenya. Uh, the Colorado, which we de- depend on, of course, doesn't reach the ocean anymore, but now it's even lower than when I did that story. And despite the efforts of the pulse flows at the end, it's it's crazy low. So what's going to happen is that we're getting the wake-up call right now. And the, the question is, are we going to listen to it um, and react? Or are we going to just pretend that water comes from the tap and everything's like it's always going to be. And I think we will, we'll figure it out. There's going to be a lot of species, other animals, fish included, that are going to have a very hard time and not survive because their habitat's going to vanish. We will adapt. And I think ultimately water will become this deciding element on how many people should live in a certain area, depending on how what our consumption rates are. And in the U.S., our consumption rates are pretty high. And it's amazing, like places like Phoenix, the average household uses 230 gallons of water per day. Um, Some cities like Denver have brought it down to just over 200 and even Tucson, which is, you know, the same desert landscape in Arizona. They brought it down too. So we we can adjust, we can adapt if we're paying attention, if first we're aware, and then second we're we're have the political will to realize that we can't take this resource for granted. There's 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 just a limited finite amount of fresh water on the planet. Most of it's locked up in Antarctica and in glaciers, and we're not about to bring those glaciers north. So we need to figure out how to deal with what we have. So you think a city like Phoenix is just still in like denial? They're just in denial, right? I think my personal opinion is that many of these places are in denial. And amazingly, part of that is because nothing's changed. There's no, um, there's no consequence. If we're in the middle of a drought, nobody's life has changed. Nobody says, you know, your water has gotten exponentially more expensive. Nobody talks about it. I've been down in in Phoenix and asked cab drivers or Uber drivers like, you're worried about the water? They're like, oh, hell no. Nothing's, there's no problem here. And that's because nobody's really talking right. about it. There's no awareness. So we need to 
first really heighten the awareness and then then B, we can start to act wisely and and be more sustainable for the future on on that front. And I think we we have the technology, we have the capability to do it. If if we can lock the entire planet down with a pandemic, I think we can figure out a, a limited changing water situation. So I have this friend that I've climbed with in Italy, and he's like an awesome philosopher. He's a really good climber. And we were climbing in the Dolomites, and he asked me a question. And at first, I didn't really understand it. I just thought it was kind of like silly poetry or something. And I realized how profound it was. He said, Eric, do you climb to go to the mountains, or do you go to the mountains to climb? And the more I thought about it, I was like, God, most of us go to the mountains to, to climb. Like, we want to recreate in the mountains. We want to, you know, suck up the entertainment value. And we want to climb those rocks and climb those ice faces and ski those faces. But are we actually going there to, like, learn something, to, like, enter into a world that's a bit sacred? And you touch on this a lot like this sort of sacred nature of, of these places that you've been to? Uh, I try to. It's a, it's a great question because it's like, I think initially I, I used the camera not because I love photography, but it was a passport to get me into these places in the mountains or wild rivers. And, and now it's, you know, camera words or storytelling is a way to kind of get me back out there and remind people that, these places are really, they really are, in my opinion, they're like outdoor cathedrals. And the interesting thing back to the silence concept is every religion in the world, no matter where you come from, they all revere silence. And so these places that are amazing natural wonders like the Grand Canyon or some of the mountain landscapes here in Colorado or beyond, you know, wherever it may be that has incredible wildlife habitat and populations, maybe we should give them the same amount of reverence as we would a, you know, a place of worship or a cathedral. I mean, you wouldn't go rock out your tunes in the Sistine Chapel on your trip to right. um, Europe. You, we have this kind of unspoken rule. You walk into these places and you, you lower your voice and you give it some respect. And so, and you listen. You listen, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with giving a big hoot and holler and loving being outside and feeling good, but it's, um, I think, I wonder if we can find a way to come back to, you know, reverence to these places that are kind of soaked in, in silence. and Yeah, yeah. Also Starlight, too. Yeah, tell us about Starlight. Yeah, we've lost, uh, you know, because of all the lights in the city and so forth, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I mean... It's just something that is really magical and and humbling and kind of reminds us that we're we're pretty small in the big picture. Yeah, and uh, we've totally we we've totally lost it in most of our urban cities because we we're just shining lights upward. We could yeah we could control that better and and be more thoughtful in our light and not try to put up forty million lights at Christmas or whatnot. The mas- national parks are trying to do that, right? Don't they have like a program where the lights go out at a certain time so you can really focus yeah. on the sky? Yeah. And like Grand Canyon um, is trying to be a a, um, a night sky national park. So down in the ranger stations down at the bottom, they, they don't have any lights. All their windows are blanketed. It's kind of amazing. And they do a good job at it. So we're trying. Uh, plenty of places are and thinking about it. And um, 
hopefully we can keep them around for, you know, the next gen to see it, hear it, smell it. So I've I've asked you this like probably in 10 ways, but I'm just going to, because we're wrapping up here. I just want to like, why do you do this, Pete? Like why, what motivates you to like go to 80 countries and explore and discover stuff and bring ideas back to people? Like what? Well, you know, I, and, and, and I know that's a really annoying question. People always ask me, why do you climb? And it's like, I don't really know exactly. I can't really give you a full answer, like an honest answer, because I don't 100% know. But, you know, maybe it's a good question to think about. I, I don't know either, to be honest. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I do, I do know that um, initially I did it because I loved the adventure. I loved exploring. I loved the adrenaline that came with it. It made me feel alive. And now as I get older... I think I still experience that, but I'm, you know, my joints are creakier and I'm, you know, not as fit as I was. But part of me wants to tell these stories so these places continue. Um, Because if we don't have these places to adventure in, then sort of what's the point of adventuring? So I think I just, for whatever reason, I have this altruistic gene that my either my parents helped me develop or seeing the world change before my eyes um, happen uh, is sort of dragging me out the door again and again. And then there's, of course, there's another part that I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. It's I'm probably too old to (laughs) to become a doctor (laughs) or a salesman. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. You are a salesman. You're selling. I guess the, I am. These a, beautiful I'm a, places. Yeah. I'm a salesman of something different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Natural spaces. So, what kind of project do you have coming around the corner? Something always exciting, probably to look forward to, right? I'm actually. Uh, I'm working on another book um, coming up on drought on the Colorado River, which I've been. I've been working on for now <laughs> over a decade. So we're going to do another version of it because it's become more obviously more prominent. And I'm working on a book on um, odd. Um, Interestingly, a, a, a book that has no photos in it. It's um, a written book on um, how to engage in what one, it's a how-to book on climate change. What can we do? And Oh, I've, that's great. I've yeah, give me like line. things to do. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's like a kind of a self-help, like don't be overwhelmed by climate change and, and just throw your hands up. Here's like some examples I've seen of like people doing incredible change with very little um, and just standing up for the things they care about um, around the world. So I'm working on that and hopefully that'll be out next year. What's one thing I can do? Like what, what's one thing I can do today that would, that would contribute? Well, I think one thing you could do today, I don't know what, um, how you get around, but I think moving towards electric is, is something that we all need to think about because we can, we can clean up the electrical grid in time um, if we start, you know, using our transportation, making them electric. I'm looking at electric cars or hybrid at least. Another thing is what we um, what we do, how much we consume, how much we eat. Like meat has a pretty big impact. I grew up on a cattle right. ranch. I love meat, but you don't yeah. have to become vegan, but you can just become a reductionarian. Yeah. Just reduce what you you know how much you consume how much you you eat of yeah. like heavy carbon producing products and then i've tried to limit my travel jet travels yeah. you know the worst and so i make sure that i'm doing it for things i really care about and do i have to go do another talk here or can i do it on zoom or 
Well, COVID taught us that as well. Half the stuff we go to do, we don't really have to. We can just do it online. Yeah. And or so, virtually. I mean, I didn't drive over to see you as much as I would have liked to have, but um, we're doing this. So little yeah. things like that. Yeah. Trying to offset, you know, plant trees, of course, if you can, um, or support people that are for offsetting flights if you got to fly. Yeah. And um, and then just communicating, you know, telling stories and not being, I would say, being hopeful. It's it's easy to get down and negative, but I think, you know, don't, don't bleed before your cut concept is plays out with climate too. Let's just take action, figure out what's cool. going on, and then figure out what we can do. Pete, awesome. So um, people want to read your books and they want to learn about you and see your TED Talks and everything. What's the, I mean, we'll have all this in the show notes, but what's your best advice? Um, I have a website, my name, PeteMcBride.com. I have um, Instagram's kind of my social media, which is a love-hate, but that's Pedro McBride. Uh-huh. Cool. You have a film that won a, uh, that uh, was, I think it was shortlisted for an Emmy? Is that your I got, a, yeah, I got, a, got nominated, shortlisted the top five for an Emmy. It didn't win. It's uh, yeah. about walking through the Grand Canyon called Into the, Into the Grand Canyon. And it's a hell of a film. So there's a lot of that out there for you too, right? Yeah, folks are interested. That's on Disney+. Plus. And then I'm working on a new film about my father, actually, kind of father-son relationship of about aging and, and being aware of your surroundings and environment. He had a big impact on me. So that'll be fun. My dad did too. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Awesome. Well, Pete, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it's been really amazing. And I love your work. And uh, I love the the sort of path you've taken on the earth. It's really cool. I know you, we throw the word inspiring back and forth, but I really am inspired by you. You know, all that you're sort of bringing back to the world through the media, your films, your books, it's it's really cool. So it's important work. So, uh, so even though your bones are getting creaky, keep it up, please. <laughs> well, you're a good man, Eric, and uh, the, it goes right. both ways. I really appreciate what you do. So uh, keep inspiring the All rest right. of us. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm 54. I'm getting a little creaky myself. My elbows are I was climbing in the gym today. My elbows were were, were creaking. <laughs> I'm right behind you on the creek path. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Pete, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in person, or, or, or I should say hear you in person, uh, you know, in correspondence with the book. And, uh, and, and no barriers to everyone. Thank you. See you next time. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk. That's me. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman. Marketing and graphics support from Stone Lord. And web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. That's nobarrierspodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much, and have a great day. See